Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, friends? We got a real money show for you today. What's real money? That's institutions that manage over $10 billion. Our guest is the former chairman of the Illinois State Board of Investment, where during his tenure, he made a mark with a firm stance on high-fee investment managers and a shift to indexing. In today's episode, we're approaching investing from the institutional pension fund side of things. We talked to our guests about his role at ISBE. When he joined, there were over 80 hedge funds in the portfolio, and he discusses the mood in the boardroom after he made the decision to fire most of them and index the portfolio instead. We get into his interesting way of thinking about investors in the context of a tribal model and why he thinks investors should honor all four tribes. We even get his thoughts on who his favorite 13F managers are. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Whether it's their monthly market wrap, top 10 visuals resource deck, or their quarterly economic summary, YCharts consistently arms advisors with the content and tools they need to turn their investment strategies into powerful discussions that truly resonate with clients. With Q1 behind us, YCharts will soon release their economic update visual deck covering topics ranging from market insights to interest rates, macroeconomic data, all packaged in a client-friendly PowerPoint deck that easily breaks down trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. See how YCharts can be your go-to resource for discussing the state of the markets, with templates and downloadable visuals, you can seamlessly incorporate into proposal reports or presentations to not only engage, but also to educate clients on their financial goals. Click on the link in the show notes to grab your copy of the visual deck and follow along when you register for YChart's economic update Q1 2024 webinar on May the 2nd. Don't forget, get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial and tell them Meb sent you new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Mark Levine. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Where do we find you? I'm in uh, Wilmette, Illinois, which is just the North Shore of Chicago, about uh, 20 minutes north. Um, beautiful day. <laughs> and uh, not pretty nice summer coming to a close. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to do my best to find some areas of disagreement. I know we're going to have a lot of Venn diagram overlapping views, but we'll get into all that. You come from, I don't want to say a traditional finance background, and you were a Gator. You did some time at Kellogg, some time with some credit, but why don't you give me just a super, super quick one minute overview leading into your time at ISBE and what is an ISBE, and we'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about all the good stuff I got planned. Sure, sure. So I grew up in Miami, went to University of Florida, as you said, accountant back in the 80s at uh, KPMG and uh, came up, actually came here to go to Kellogg and haven't left. Not that that was necessarily the plan. A couple of Chicago banks in the 90s, Continental, which became BFA and, and Chicago Corp, which became AB and AMRO. Got into structured finance very, very early days, not long after Lou Ranieri invented the mortgage back security and uh, had just a ball with that throughout the 90s, actually, and the OOs. So uh, developed, actually invented a structured investment vehicle that the unique factor was match funded 
did that actually back in like a one, sorry, 91, 92. So long, long, long time ago. And that was a nice life. I was, I made a, you know, a few basis points on a few dollars of assets and uh, where the business model really was originating and structuring aspect securities, getting them rated, and then using guys like Citibank, Salman, previously Salman Brothers, Merrill Lynch to raise capital for us. 08, 09, we had beautiful assets. We had four-year, mostly four-year money, which was forever in late 08, and really used that to kill and um, move the portfolio to CLOs. I don't know how familiar you or your viewers are with that, and mostly like MES CLO paper, right? Portfolios of senior secured loans, mostly private equity-owned businesses, and uh, felt to me like this stuff was trading 40 cents and later 10 cents, and you didn't feel so good stuff you'd bought at 40, but they felt like par bonds the whole time to me. And sure enough, in like 10, even kind of, you know, called second half of 2009, reinflated, beautiful. And so since then, I've been kind of finding, <laughs> trying to find what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It's funny you talk about that sort of credit world. I mean, I remember reading some of these old school books on bankruptcy investing, and there's one, I'll pull it up because I can't remember the name of it, but it details sort of the fight for Marvel, which is now this massive business, but back in the day involving Carl Icahn and all these other players. And to me, that's always seemed such a, one, fascinating slash complicated world. I mean, my God, you talk about alpha and these people that read these like thousands of pages of legal documents, but also so much work when you're talking about these distressed, <laughs> these distressed securities. All right. So I'll see if I can find that while you talk. All right. So after that, it led into the runway to ISBI. Tell us what ISBI was and your motivation for joining that organization. Okay. So what ISBI is, is the Illinois State Board of Investment. It's actually the, it's the pension system for Illinois state employees, legislators, and judges. And it's, it's one of the three primary public pension plans in the state of Illinois, right along the other two are teacher, Illinois teachers and um, state university workers. So back in like 2011, 12, I was you know, trying to figure out sort of the next thing I was going to do with my life. And one of the things I want to do was kind of give back a little bit. So I sort of felt like what I'd done with my life to that point was explaining very complex financial structures to CFOs and treasurers and sometimes CEOs and boards and uh, trying to simplify and really think about what a pension system is, is a very complex financial structure. And I'm like, geez, maybe I can use my skills of simplifying to talk to media and legislators. And I did. And I actually, it was kind of great. I met a gazillion people and including the guy who actually became governor and a guy named Bruce Rauner, who was actually chairman of a large-ish private equity firm in Chicago and decided to run for governor, God knows why. Anyway, he gets elected governor in 14 and asks me to chair uh, the Illinois State Board of Investment. And as far as just a couple of facts on what that is, when I got there, it was a $14 billion defined benefit plan. So a pool of assets with contractual liabilities and also a $4 billion 401k style in government. There's different legislation, but 401k style plan. So it's governed by a nine member board. These are not shrinking violets on this board. Um, they are uh, right. The state treasurer, and in fact, many state employee pension systems across the country are. They have a sole trustee of the state treasurer, but he's on our board and actually a pretty decent guy. And the state comptroller and Senate majority leader, appeals court judge, and then as well as five uh, governor appointees. So that's the structure of the board. 
By the way, quick aside, listeners, the name of that book was Comic Wars, which only gets three stars on Amazon, but I thought it was excellent anyway. So Mark, you joined um, this challenging environment of dealing with a real money institution. Listeners describe that as pension fund, endowment, sovereigns, any of these big pools of capital with 10 billion plus, some of them are 100 billion plus, but really serious big money. And a challenging, not just from a portfolio standpoint, but from a many different involved parties standpoint, whether like if you're an endowment, it's alumni, it's current students, it's faculty, it's people managing the port, all these just different. Give us a super quick overview of kind of how you see the state of pension funds today. Illinois certainly gets to be one that's in the news a lot anytime the topic comes up. And then we'll use that kind of as a jumping off point for how you approached your role and how you thought about it. Mike Steele. My role was purely on the investment side. So the way pension funds work across the country, right? You've got legislators negotiating with union leaders, et cetera, on, you know, in collective bargaining settings for, to set the liabilities. And then the assets are normally managed. We're very, very typical. Usually there's a board. Sometimes it's just a sole trustee, a staff. We're one of the, probably one of the 20 largest in the country. It's exactly what you think. If you look at sort of the population of each state, that's how big each, right? California is the biggest, so on and so forth. On the investment side, there's a couple of severe big time challenges with public pensions. Every institutional investor have their own unique challenges and you have to sort of manage assets within the reality that you live in. What I learned over, let's call it the first couple of years, is that the two primary challenges that a public pension has Number one, you have, it is attached to the government. So you absolutely have the risk of political meddling, of patronage, of kind of that whole world. I'm not saying it happens everywhere. I think that's a risk that people don't really give enough time of, you know, kind of thinking about. The other one is I think everybody's very well aware of, which is the government organizations tend to be under-resourced and you never end up paying your people quite as much as you, they, could get, they could make in the private sector. And you always have the risk of being, you know, front page of cranes for any sort of action. It could be you stayed in a Marriott that had a hot tub in it or something. It was ridiculous. Those are really the two key challenges. And that's what I tried to sort of deal with, right, in, in investing the money. So you show up day one and the portfolio looks different today than it did then. Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy of putting together a portfolio. You can give us a tour of the asset allocation or just how you think about, and then also the challenges of actually implementing those changes too. I didn't really come with any particular preconceived notions on this asset class or that asset class or hedge funds or private equity, that sort of thing. But I do, I am who I am. And I had a philosophy of simplification of the whole world of finance tends, remember I come out of structured finance, right? So where in a way we basically, our industry is prospering blowing up the world by just overcomplicating things where no one understood what the hell was going on in any of these, right, any of these securities. So for me, the first thing we could do was shovel out the complexity that was totally unnecessary. So in my own portfolio, I index more, well over half of my own assets. In fact, while I was chairman, I actually indexed all of them. I didn't want any have to deal with perceptions of, of, of complex, that sort of thing. But I'm a, I am a believer in indexing big time and I have been for 25 years. 
So when you end, you think about what a pension does. We have an asset allocation and we implement the allocation by usually, okay, by hiring managers in each asset. So at the highest level, stocks, bonds, real estate, and then sub-asset classes under there. And you can end up with hundreds and yeah, literally hundreds and hundreds of managers. And the beautiful thing about indexing is you actually skip that whole second step and whatever you decide in your asset allocation, that's what you get. And there's nothing to do. And you don't need a staff. The political med- the risk of political meddling goes away almost completely, right? Because the meddling is the money, right? The investment management fees become a goodie available for patronage. It becomes a honeypot. So we, by having a very, very, very low fee, right? We pay like less than a basis point for as an institutional investor. And as a, of course, as a retail investor, it's like four basis points. I would say indexing is free, right? You pay clerical costs. You're not paying fancy managers who end up owning basketball teams and football teams, et cetera. So you kind of cut out that cost. But it's a beautiful thing in a pension setting because of those two massive limitations you have. So that's kind of the baggage that I brought. And that was, um, so there's really a bias, particularly the first year, to shorten the roster, the manager roster, fire managers, which is its own thing. And we can certainly get into that. And do some indexing so that we can start to think. We can then start to say, hey, geez, how can we maybe make this thing great? A lot of listeners will probably be, we used to talk about this in this concept of a zero budget portfolio, where so many investors have this just mess of seven different brokerage accounts and a hundred holdings and 20 different funds. They have large cap growth, large cap value, large cap blend, large cap whatever, you know, and you ask them what they end up having. And most investors just like, I have no idea. And we say a good starting point is just come up with a blank piece of paper, write down what your ideal looks like. And if it's you know extremely different, there's a big problem. And so the problem with a lot of these legacy allocations, they're so complicated. There's just like a gazillion managers and it's nearly impossible, even with the best software on the planet to really know kind of what's even happening. You'll talk to I forget what CalPERS had, the amount of like private equity managers they owned, it was like half the industry. All right. So talk to me about kind of, we see kind of some of the problems in the asset classes. how did you kind of go about implementing those changes? Also, was it challenging? Was there a lot of pushback or people like, you know what, Mark, have at it? So at first it was extremely challenging. There was just a right there. We're in the political world and you've got a governor, a Republican governor who put me on the board. Nothing I'm talking about here is a Republican. It's not Republican to index or or, right or or not like a hedge fund because they don't make money for you. It's not Republican or Democrat, but politicians, you know, sometimes on your hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so initially there was some mistrust. And here I come. Okay, now the board elected me as chairman in September of 2015, eight months after I joined the board. We have elections every two years, sort of the way the bylaws work. I wanted to sort of make a statement that day. And so the statement was, look, we got hundreds of managers, four of them are on watch. They're in like large cap, just as you were describing, they were our eighth large cap stock domestic and our 17th international small cap, like (laughs) whatever. There was, you know, obviously negative out. Yeah, there were not hitting benchmarks. So surely we can do this. And, and that was, there was a lot of heat on that, big time. We're finding four managers, a couple of them were based in Chicago. The media shows up to the meeting. Actually, it's funny, wrote what I think they thought were gotcha pieces that I thought were just terrific. So there was a lot of heat in that room. And then as, um, it's funny, as once the votes were going to be the votes, we're nine member board. And it, I had talked to enough people. I knew 
where everyone was. And it was going to be six to three because I talked to the other eight. So um, on the terminations and uh, one of the guys who was really the hottest finally sits down after this debate and says, all right, Mark, who are your guys? Right. Who, which is the way you, he's not wrong. OK, to think that way. So it's like you're getting rid of our guys. Who are your guys? Uh, that wasn't the language, but that was certainly that it's going to be indexed. And all the heat came out of the room because indexing, you actually took the insult out, number one, right? Of You fire a manager, it's insulting to that part, right? And these were actually terrific managers who we were firing. They just didn't work for this philosophy that I was bringing to the table that a majority of the board agreed with. Uh, so you take the insult out and then there's no goodies to be going some, you know, to the other side. Like, it really was quite helpful. So that was a major, major accomplishment. Even though it was only four managers, we actually ended up firing a hundred. Okay. Now we actually changed general consultants in the pension world often have a lot of power where there's a very important use of general co- consultants. And then there's, I think, in it, I view it as an excessive use. The use that's essential is that board members need a piece of paper, right? To sort of CYA on decisions you make, whether that's asset allocation or managers you hire, you fire. It's just very helpful to have. Okay, to have an outsider giving you a sheet of paper, uh, whether it's a media attack or potential litigation, whatever it is, it's exactly what you sort of think. Often these general consultants end up being sort of almost being used as battering rams on this, you know, this side or the other. Anyway, we replaced the old general because it was terrific for her, okay, with another one that, but we wanted somebody had a blank sheet of paper, as you call it, whether it's zero budgeting, right, zero based asset allocation, exact, that's, that was the key. And a consultant who'd been there for 12 years probably wasn't the best guy to have a blank sheet, right? It's always like, you write a 3x overweight to small cap, maybe, maybe, geez, somebody should have mentioned that to us the first six months we were on the board and we shouldn't have to find it ourselves and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so we did an asset allocation. And of course, very quickly, I, what I suspected we find, we did find, which was these things called hedge funds that um, you know, for, for ISBE were, we had 80, 80 hedge funds, okay? That were nearly all of the, call it long short or long only type variety. So stock pickers, not a lot of the derivative guys who I think actually are far worse. And we should talk about that at some point. Those guys, those, they really find the suckers. But uh, we looked at it and, and of course they had, pulled off the most incredible magic trick of all time, which is they pick stocks, but they don't get benchmarked against stock market indices. They get benchmarked against a thing that is a stock market index minus two and 20 called the HFRI. Okay. The HFRI is stock markets minus two and 20. So that's, I mean, it's good work if you can get it. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to benchmark them. They pick stocks. We got a benchmark for you. It's called the stock market. Okay. So once you did that, we saw 150 bips of negative alpha, which was all the two and 20, you know, nonsense. We didn't go from 10 to, so we had a 10% allocation of hedge funds, which at the time was called a billion and a half dollars. We didn't go from 10 to zero. We went from 10 to three. One of, actually, a couple of board members were like, geez, it's a long way to zero. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's go to three. Let's, look, I'll take half a loaf every day of the week. I'm really happy that we did that because there actually were some terrific managers inside of the portfolio. So out of these 80 hedge fund managers, by the way, what a classic way of, I'm sure this is something that you're very familiar, kind of in your line of work, if you, investors always end up diversifying away from their best ideas, right? Always. So, um, right, which is like, frankly, one of the reasons why 2 and 20 makes no sense. I'm just diversifying away from you anyway. You're not that important to me. 
So boy, this better be a fair deal for you and for me. Anyway, a few of these managers had actually generated, had generated some alpha. Um, they tended to be part of, uh, we used, sorry, we, ISB had used fund of fund structure and there is nothing wrong with that. That gets beaten up to death, right? Double fees, blah, blah. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So I am not a disbeliever in that, not one bit. I actually believe that the second piece of our primary philosophy which got developed in kind of years three and four were outsourcing selection of active managers. Anyway, so a firm Rock Creek had had a bunch of managers, which they had for like 10 years. And they actually terrific like performance. Guys like TCI, which is Chris Hahn, who's compounded like 22 after fees. And um, a couple of guys who, who what we sort of, we started to realize that there was a biased right to innovation. So guys like Tiger Global and Code 2. So we ended up keeping a few. Then I started getting some publicity. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you want to get on TV, fire a hedge fund. CNBC loves that stuff. The way I describe all of that is I'd sort of come in and they'd be like, hey, what are you working on? I'd be like, oh, it's awesome. We just hired like BlackRock and we're going to we're gonna diversify, have some diversity in our public, public stocks with some factors. And yeah, 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 yeah. We just want you to trash hedge funds. Like you, know, you fired Ackman, right? Um, which we did. The beautiful thing, pension funds managed by boards. I mean, so are, endowment foundation is no different. You have quarterly meetings, and it was a very nice cadence to restructure the portfolio. About six months later, we, we as I said, we had a $4 billion DC plan, a um, you know defined contribution plan, 401k style. And that had like, okay, so yeah, that was um, 18 different managers. We got participants select. And you know, inevitably what happens in these super complicated DC, by the way, 18 is not bad. I mean, it's often like 100. And what inevitably happens is I like this one and this one, they end up like half small cap and half international or emerging markets. It's ridiculous. If I had my way, there would have been one choice, which would have been a life cycle type structure. But what we ended up doing, we went from 18 to seven. We got rid of all active management. It's like, why do we need, we could, it's funny, as a board member, we could actually be sued if somebody picked an active manager and they picked a bad stock. I mean, why do I need that? So a lot of stuff like that, we ended up, as I said, we you know, got rid of Another board meeting, we fired like two and a half billion dollars of managers. We just really culled the portfolio down and simplified like crazy during those first couple of years. So there's a lot to dive into here. I think one of the things that you mentioned that I would love to hear you say a little more about, because I think it's probably non-consensus, is you mentioned fund to funds, the role they play. You have listeners who would say, okay, hedge funds is high bar to a 20 fund of funds, you're going to lay in another fee. How do those two jive? So talk to me a little bit about that whole philosophy and your kind of mindset behind that. Absolutely. You get market returns from indexing. So that's free. That's, as we discussed earlier, that's clerical costs. That's a perfect implementation of your asset allocation. Where we ended up was about two thirds of our portfolio ended up being indexed, right? So passively managed, a perfect implementation. But our view was, look, there's private market assets, which we believed not for diversification's sake, and we should chat about that a little bit. That's a whole kind of BS world of trying to reduce your daily standard deviation. Like that's worth it, like worth anything. So there's lots of interesting private market assets, of course, like things like real estate, opportunistic real estate, as you were talking about, like distressed credit, private equity, and there are a few managers. They may concentrate on a few stocks. They may concentrate on a theme. They tend to be private equity type mindset, but who can kill? Okay. 
it's really hard to figure out who the hell those people are. And you know, if you're a, a pension fund employee staffer sitting in an office in Butte, Montana, or you know, Provo, wherever the hell you are, the likelihood, and even frankly, Chicago, Illinois, okay, the likelihood of you tripping over somebody who can actually add value. If, if you're not going to add value, there's no reason for you. It's not to get in, we can get invested by indexing. So it's special to find somebody who should manage assets for you that aren't in, assets that aren't going to be indexed. That's really hard to do. And it's really, really hard to do in the set, in a pension setting. We have all this risk of political meddling. Two and 20 is juicy. You think about patronage. Okay. And I'm not suggesting this happened. It is me. I don't, to my knowledge, it didn't. Okay. But that's a juicy amount of money. And it happens all over the country all the time. Well, and to interrupt you real quick, you made a comment earlier about buying sports teams and, and, you know, recent news on Steve Cohen and buying the Mets and all these other fund managers. It goes back to the old book, Where are the Customer's Yachts? <laughs> you know, it's like all these hedge fund managers. I have a friend who described as a compensation scheme masquerading as an asset class, which I thought was a pretty humorous description. But OK, keep going. Keep going. That's exactly right. So the likelihood you're going to get it right is it's very tough to do. There's nothing wrong with indexing your entire portfolio. Nothing at all probably is better. You know who agrees with me, by the way? David Swenson, okay? He, Yale University Endowment took it from a billion to 30 billion while he was paying 40% of the operating expense of the university, okay? Over the last 30 years, right? He agrees with me. Warren Buffett agrees with me. His estate's gonna be 90% indexed SP 500, 10% treasuries for that free efficient frontier uh, for free lunch. Anyway, so nothing wrong with indexing everything. We decided not to take that approach. But the decision was, look, can we find some special people who all they do is pick managers, we'll pay them 30 or 40 basis points. So for your viewers, listeners, you know, 0.2 and 20 is 2%, 200 basis points, okay, on a fee on assets, and then 20% of all the money you make, not the alpha, all the money, okay, insanity. Paying somebody to me, three tenths, four tenths of a percent, half a percent, to select, or maybe giving them a cut of upside and very, very little fee, but they do all the work. You've outsourced all the work. Who cares about the work? All you care about is results, okay? It's the only thing that matters, otherwise just index. So that's the way we decided to go. We had terrific experience with this firm, Rock Creek, ended up doing an RFP and hiring a, another firm called Hyvista. We ended up using sort of three or four firms to, that's what I called outsourcing. And there's different models for that, right? There's OCIO, okay, which is a very normal model where you, you hire somebody like a, like a high visitor, Rock Creek, or a couple dozen others. Um, McKenna's a terrific firm in San Francisco. So you hire from, they do everything. We didn't want the everything part. We wanted just the value add. And fund of funds is a really interesting, it's kind of the same concept. So to me, the stakes are very high, very hard to do. Not only, and I'll actually put one more layer on, one more layer, which is I pay somebody two and 20. I pay a private equity firm or a hedge fund two and 20. Okay. And I, sometimes I, yeah, I know hedge funds, the fees have gone down or whatever. Am I actually okay? And then I benchmark them right. So I don't buy this nonsense HFRI crap or your private equity is historically horribly benchmarked where you and I know it's leveraged small cap and there's fairly simple ways to benchmark that. But you pay somebody two and 20. Okay. Now what's left over for me? Well, you know what? If it's one basis point, I mean, that's not a fair deal. Like you sit down at the table and, and I have the money and you have the talent. I feel like I should get at least half. And I'm measuring my half from alpha. 
So it's really hard to do, right? It's hard to create alpha in the first place, hard to find the matter. It's very, very challenging. And so I think having an expert is a really good idea. Pay the money. And if it doesn't work, just index everything. I had a couple memories as you were talking way back in my first book. I remember you were talking about AB and AMRO. And they used to write all these research reports about the foreign listed hedge funds, these fund of funds that would be traded on exchanges in Amsterdam and London. Ironically, a lot of the fund managers were from Chicago. So Chicago for a long time was a big fund of fund. I mean, Grosner and all these names. And the listed funds never became anything that big in the US. You've had a couple Greenlight and Third Point have sort of done it a little bit in their insurance wrappers. You mentioned Ackman, he has one, but it's again in Europe. It just flooded back some memories of that whole space that I'll have to update, see how many are still still in business. The 2010s was kind of a graveyard for hedge funds. So I imagine not that many, but that brought back a lot of fond memories. A lot of those funds in 08, and we actually wrote about it this year when it was happening to Ackman, his foreign listed fund got to like a 40% discount to NAV at one point. Anyway, that's a whole different probably podcast. So, okay, what areas, if you had to say, okay, look, we're going to index all these certain things. You mentioned private equity buyouts as a strategy that could almost be public markets. What areas do you think are most optimal for simple description would be alpha or ways that you think it's worth paying up for? for strategies or active bins or any just general philosophy about that in general? First thing I'd say actually is in like public markets, okay? There are, um, the fact that you're not, you can actually index alpha strategies to a certain extent. Like for example, in my indexing, in my personal portfolio, I have been, I get nervous all the time, but I have been a believer in kind of these mega cap growth, like the sort of Amazon, the, the big five, like it just seems like whole, sort of sucking the whole world in. And so I view it as indexing that part of my, not huge, but not small either. I mean, well over 10% of my personal assets, I put in something called MGK, which is just like the QQQ. But that's still, in, it's really still indexing. I paid four basis points to Vanguard and I get double way, I know, like the, like the large the large caps in the SP 500 aren't quite big enough. I need to have extra, but that's what I do. So there's things you can do very local. And you should always, I think, look to that first. Are there ways I can express views, right, with um, inexpensively and maybe systematically? So and maybe I'm a deep value guy. What I'm describing here is I, I have a bias towards innovation, um, even though I'm more genetically disposed to, to deep value. There's a bunch of asset classes, and I'll get to the sort of high conviction in just a sec, that make a lot of sense, but don't make a lot of sense to index. So like in fixed income, treasury bonds, you might as well pay Vanguard a couple of bips and take it away. We end up paying, this is, and this is one of the things I use big time on hedge funds, like sort of attacking the derivative book hedge funds. But like in core fixed income where, you know, you buy, of course, some corporate bonds and some maybe some mortgage backs and some treasuries, blah, blah, blah. Well, you pay a guy like eight basis points, 10 basis points. And if you find somebody who's got some good judgment, Actually, so I had about a year before he died, I had my like life's dream. I got to meet John Vogel. And I, yeah, one of the things I had, like, I took a picture with him. And he said this one thing, the one thing that sort of surprised me and stuck with me, he said, I just wanted to give investors a good deal. He didn't care about passive active, actually. He didn't care. 
He had no dogma. So nice to see Morgan Housel in his new book. So, you know, it's like, I fear a little bit that the indexers are getting a little too dogmatic. Anyway, so dogma's bad in any case. So in the real estate world, okay, um, you sort of almost have both versions. And so I can, I'll segue into the, actually your question. Sorry to dance around so much. So core real estate is kind of a vanilla product. And there's guys like Prudential and JP Morgan, et cetera. These like massive, massive funds. They buy big, you know, the big office buildings in downtown Denver, Chicago, New York, wherever. So there's that. And they charge, that can't be indexed. That's an illiquid asset. That's a private asset. There's actually a few bits of illiquidity premium. Very, very well worth it. And you pay these guys like 60 basis points. It's perfectly fair deal, 70 basis points, perfectly good deal. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so now the segue. So you're looking at real estate, well, we'll same thing kind of fixed income and private equity kind of sort. By the way, ISB is the number one pension fund in America on private equity. And I'll tell you how we did that in just a sec. I think I'll get a laugh. But in, um, so non-core real estate, like opportunistic real estate, now there's some juice, right? So, so that's different. That'll be like a fixer-upper. That might be a development. That might be an office building that has no tenants, okay? That might be a hotel that has no occupants. That may, that's all different, all sorts of different things. That might be a distressed mortgage, by the way, which might be a perfectly good building. So we actually ended up having about half of our asset, of our real estate assets in, right? And that, I love that. And that you'll pay, look, you'll pay money for that. There's just an enormous amount of work, okay? Like to have lawyer, if you're like the lead, you know, creditor, that's where it's okay. I think it's okay to pay fees as long as it's fair. You're doing something for the money. You're finding assets. I can't just hit a button on a screen and own. That makes a lot of sense. Credit, kind of same thing. It's like if, you know, distress credit might make sense and all that kind of stuff. And private equity, if you think about it. Now, private equity, what you want to watch out for, we're number one in the country, Okay is we have this outsource model. So we use a firm called Hamilton Lane. They're terrific. They're in Philadelphia, public company. Um, we got a load of clients across, right? They know everybody and they get invested. It's good, okay? But the secret is that I, that I said to them, I'm like, don't use your imagination, okay? On what this guy thinks or that guy thinks or what would make Mark happier? What would make Jim happier? What would make Sherry happy? Like, don't do that. Just... Use your best judgment and do the best you can. And we're number one. A lot of times you can just make fewer bad decisions, okay? And that's how you win. What's the tribal model? <laughs> so that's a fresh topic. What gave me the idea for this was, maybe I'll write an op-ed or something or, or do a, now I'm a blogger, you know, all this stuff. So I never thought about Bitcoin in my life. I'm like, what bugs me about this thing? Like, I, you know, and I never owned any. I bought a tiny, tiny amount. There's something super weird about this thing. And that's how I came up with the tribal model. So my experiences over the last call, 20, 20, 30 years, not just the ISB experience, but that there's really kind of four tribes of investing. And I think you could almost put everybody in one of them. Um, and then there's, of course, and there's, there's gradation. Yeah, there, there's, it, it, you could be in a couple of them. But so I almost view on the very le- on the left, they're the guys who predicted 20 of the last one, who forecast 20 of the last one recession. There's the perma bears. That's that hedge fund world. That's everything in life is about minimizing your standard deviation. There's always a problem around the corner. There isn't a Silicon Valley that's developing all this innovation, right? And sequencing DNA and restructuring IT departments into, you know, from on-prem to cloud. 
There's not an Amazon that's creating a whole e-commerce. Like that doesn't exist. Everything's terrible. The Federal Reserve is the most powerful entity that ever lived and all is bad. And right now they are selling to people and institutions all over the world. We called it in February. We got out. It's like what they're neglecting to mention is they got out 20 other times in the last 10 years and missed all the beauty. Because equities are beautiful over long periods of time, as you well know. I suspect listeners to your show understand that very well, that as long as you don't have a short time horizon, standard deviation, daily fluctuations are completely irrelevant. By the way, I banged my head against the wall for four years in this pension world because that's normal. Like, oh my God, but it's risky. It's like the only thing to care about is 2040. You're investing in 2018, 2020. If you think you could figure out 2021, best of luck, pal. Okay. It's about what is the world going to look like? And then you can really make money. So the perma bears are the first tribe. Then there's what I call sort of deep values. These are the guys who discount cash flow. They love General Motors at five times earnings. They, they're really good at math. They refuse to buy a stock that's a multiple of revenue. Unfortunately, you miss Amazon because Bezos refuses. It's like, I'm not. Like, I'm going to reinvest every dollar because why do I want to give 40 cents to the government? That's kind of a dogmatic, silly thing. But having said that, you know, people often ask, I'm sure they ask you daily, how similar are we to like 99, 2000? Because it does feel very bubbly when you got like a snowflake IPO that's a multiple of three times Zoom's revenue multiple, right? So not only do you, we're not now on multiples of revenues, we're on multiples of the highest multiples of revenue, right? So I'm not crazy. I, I sort of understand the world. And I'm, I'm thinking about particularly this deep value tribe that they don't really care much about Federal Reserve. And they're, they're not pessimistic, they're kind of neither pessimistic nor optimistic. But they love discounting cash flows. They love to they see what they, you know, kind of what's in those next four or five years. Like, it's too murky out there. They might be right, okay? And a lot of times I am they. I like aircraft leasing. I, I mean, when I can get an air cap at 30% a book, I'll do that, okay? So the one thing I think today that's very similar to 99-2000, I think that the tech stocks, and we'll get to that, that's the fourth tribe, that what you have now, you had complete fraud in 99, 2000 of like page views and things like valuation metrics, um, complete nonsense, where now you have great, great companies that arguably are ridiculously overvalued. Maybe they're overvalued, maybe they're not. Amazon, as things turn out, was not overvalued over the last 20 years, neither were Salesforce, neither were a lot of guys. But what is, I think, very similar, and those guys, the deep value tribe, which by the way, is a lot of like pension funds, a lot of their money managers tend to be these deep value guys that stuff feels so cheap. I mean, that stuff, it's like Delta Airlines or a hotel company or cruise line. I can get like at a, I mean, my God, like Boeing, I can get three times their 2018 earnings. Do I really think when things ultimately normalize, whether it's three years, five years, 10 years, like, so there feels to me like there's uh, right. But anyway, so that's that track. So then there's the indexers. You can see, by the way, how those pessimistic forecasting 20 of the last one recessions, some of them would understand the deep value guys. You can also see how some of the deep value guys could understand the indexers. So the indexers are generally optimistic, but not wild-eyed, couldn't care less about the Fed, believe the world's going to be better. And But, but the one flaw, the one dogmatic flaw that indexers have is, I'm sure you've heard this a bunch of times, when you see a dollar bill on the ground, the efficient markets, University of Chicago indexer guy, okay, Mark Levine, He's going to say that dollar's not actually, don't pick it up. It's not there. It's an illusion because somebody would have picked it up. Sometimes people actually don't pick up the damn dollars. All right. And then the, um, and the fourth tribe are the innovators. So the utopian, right. And I kind of feel, so to get this whole thing back to how I kind of had the idea for this 
way of looking at the investment world is Bitcoin are the perma bears and the innovators. It's nuts. Like the guys who never touch each other. And frankly, I think Haiti, like truly dislike each other, like personally, they're different religions. And yet it's funny in Bitcoin, you have legitimate viewpoints that this thing could 40x on the fact that it's so much better than gold and, you know, that it's, you know, transportable, you know, blah, blah, divisible, blah, blah, blah. Gold is right, is the asset of the perma bears. So anyway, that's a, I know a long answer. Man, there's a lot in here that I love. The interesting thing about the crypto argument is people always assume it's either going to, it's not 40x, by the way, they either say it's going to 100x or zero. And I love talking on Twitter. I'm like, why can't it just be flat? Why can't it just go up 2% or down 2% or go nowhere? Why does it have to be this binary outcome where there's only two states? Anyway, this may be, I think, one of the most important things we talk about today. And listeners, I want you to be honest with yourselves and think, what silo do you put yourself in? Because I often say that anytime you self-identify with a label, now it can be perma bear, it can be crypto bull, it can be Tesla, bull or bear, whatever it may be, dividend guy, indexer, Republican or Democrat. Um, we won't even bring religion into this, but we could. Immediately your IQ goes down 30 points because you shut all the doors on possible open-mindedness to the world. And there's probably nothing that gets people into more trouble than having a closed-minded approach to the world of investing. Because like you mentioned, it's a weird world we live in. I mean, 2020, my God, you've had the fastest from all-time highs to bear market, and then the fastest ever from bear market all-time highs. You have oil futures trading negative. You have half the sovereigns in the world being negative. So to not at least be somewhat open-minded, it's, I feel like, a huge handicap. I don't know if you have anything to add, but I think what you talk about just now, this tribal mindset, is more important than almost anything else because people end up shutting themselves off from all the possibilities of what's going on in the world. My best friend, Dave Rapport, has a money management firm. It's an indexer. I sometimes worry that he, and he's actually been my editor, actually, in all the stuff I've written, and he's the one who... I came up in the, the side this classic Wall Street Journal hedge fund piece of why Illinois fired its hedge funds. I wrote that the reason why the hedge fund's not a diversifier is that our bonds do that. And I know, like I own Procter Gamble bonds. I know my kids are going to brush their teeth tonight. And what I wrote was, I don't have a clue about that long euro short yen trade. And Dave's the one who said, no, 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 long lumber, short sugar, the, the poetry, the Bob Dylan. Anyway, so I test dogma actually on, on him. And I get, like, we can all get dogmatic. And like I said, I've spent times in my life. So I listened to your podcast with Palm. Where you really got me, Meb, was you were describing sort of the early days. It's like, I know my own limitations. I know I get scared. I get happy. I get like, and I'm going to make all these terrible mistakes. And so that's what I have to build around. And I think that's the key to everything. You learn nothing, okay, during good times. You learn, in fact, you learn negative lessons. You get all kinds of terrible habits. Markets can only go up. I'm going to actually margin my public market equities to fund my capital calls for private equity. That's what you'd learn. Stupid. Nothing dumber. That's where actually horror comes, right? Of course, redemptions, yada, yada. It's in the horror of like Feb, March 2020, Feb, March 09, September, October 08, 
2002, everyone thinks it was 9-11. It was actually more of the Enron, right? The nasty, nasty, like S&P drops like 50%. Oh my God. Like that's when you learn how much pain can I take? And so what is my right, how much untouchable asset, right? What, am I allocated whether it's 60, 40, 80, 20, 100, zero, whatever the hell it's going to be, okay? That's the only thing that matters. Like how much, I, there's a certain amount of pain I simply cannot take. And I will sell my stocks at S&P 2200. Okay, I'll do it. I know I'll do it. Because I, because you know what? Guess what? The S&P went to 660 not that long ago. Okay. So your imagination can run wild, right? So now I'll get back to the question, which thou shalt honor, even though I disagree with them on ev almost everything, thou shalt honor the perma bears. That every once in a while, like, you need a perma bear, right? You need to have a little fear. Okay. You don't want to live your life in fear, but you need to have a little fear. So for me, and I'll make the second part shorter, I'm an indexer. I love though, I'm an 80-20 guy. Okay, so I, I, I think I'll rebalance. Next time market gets like crushed and selling my 80-20, 70-30, I think I'll rebalance it back to 80-20. You never know. Another thing that I know is if I start picking stocks or biasing, as I was talking earlier in the QQQ or MGK and the large cap, where I, I want to invest in the theme of biotech or the theme of cloud, I know myself. And if the market is doing well and I'm losing money, doing very well, and I'm, I don't care within five, 10%, and I'm losing money, I'm going to like start to really feel horrible. For that reason, I want to have a big hunk of index as a ballast, okay, that I have pl plenty of room to play. And the other thing though, so, thou sh so, so that's the index. I think it's insane for anyone to not respect indexers, okay? To say, it's all bad, you're un-American, go away. I think that's more stupid than kind of anything. But in my stock selection, I, I didn't really implement this, although it would have been, I would have, I would actually, had I thought about it, I think I would have back at pension fund. I like having some, even though I'm more of an innovation guy, that's definitely more of my concentrations, cloud, you know, Amazon, blah, 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 CrowdStrike, et cetera. I wanna have some deep value to just, they're certainly not going to be the same if I have a conviction on one side, but I want to honor all four tribes. Because again, remember I said to you about 10 minutes ago, you can see I'm sort of, I'm really confident about a lot of things I believe in. I look at like, if I can buy stocks like General Motors at five times or AirCap at 30% of book and Boeing at three times 2018 earnings, but I'm Mr. Innovation. Like I'm, I am, I'm letting my freaking Amazon ride. Like having just a little, so those days when it's the opposite I'd like to feel a little good. So I'm going to, thou shalt honor the deep value tribe as well. <laughs> All right. So we're, we're working on you starting a whole blog post slash white paper. This is going to end up being a book by the end of the podcast, but here's an idea. And I think this is actually rooted, not just in very real psychology, but also the best possible behavior. So you can come up with an optimal portfolio based on whomever, what tribe you may be in. Until you go through all the possible outcomes, that portfolio, as we all know, is going to be incredibly difficult. So the first thing that people can do is at least write it down. As misguided as a lot of the real money institutions are, at least at their core, and I'd put indexers in the same camp, they have a policy portfolio, meaning they have, here's generally our rules of what we're going to do and how. Okay, so 90% of investors we talk to don't even have that. They're just shooting from the hip, play it by ear. Here's what I do. I have it in my mind, but it's not written down. We used to give speeches 
and I stopped because it was embarrassing, where we would ask the audience, say, raise your hand if you have a written investing plan, and no one ever does. So here's the idea we're getting to, is almost like you have an investment checklist, and I think that's actually kind of easy, but then you go through all the possible outcomes of what a behavioral checklist may be like. So, all right, I got index in my core, that checks the fundamental ballast of low cost, global portfolio, whatever it may be with all your little tweaks. All right. So second, maybe I want to check off my FOMO bucket. And so I'm going to have a little bit in crypto. Next, I'm going to check off my value itch. So I'm either going to have factor tilts or active managers. Next, I'm going to check off my behavioral tendency because I'm an emotional wreck that if the market goes down X amount, so maybe I buy some tail, whatever. You just keep going down the list until you have something. It's not bulletproof, but at least covers all of the psychological problems that I feel like people don't talk that much about in investing. You end up in one of the four camps instead of all four camps, or at least a tiny smidgen of each. The most important thing you could do, whether you're an institution or a human being, probably more important as a human being, frankly, even though it's, as you said, institutions are pretty good at writing down a state of policy and actually living by it. So I've trashed pension funds a lot in this conversation. By the way, endowments foundations are no better. Okay, they have their own idiosyncrasies of who made the big donation and put their guy on and did whatever games end up occurring there. For an institution, I've never really thought about this before. For an institution, making a change is actually kind of difficult. To actually change your allocation, to go away from a policy of, I'm 55% stocks, 35% bonds, 20% real estate, whatever the hell you are. Okay. And then I have these ranges. And to actually vary from that, it would actually be bad governance to say that's not a board decision, that staff implement everything with it. Right. So it's actually kind of hard to do. So if you wait, so Donald Trump gives an insane speech where, like, I'm keeping the Europeans out instead of being empathetic to everybody. Because he had a conversation with his son-in-law earlier that they didn't want to scoop the market. The next day, the stock market drops by second most ever. And then, <laughs> and then two, right? Then it goes up, then it goes back down, and the stock market actually closes, okay, because it's down so much. Insanity, like level of volatility and fear. That's the day you need the rules. That's the day that you want to be slow because you're scared out of your mind. I mean, it's if everyone is. And so that's where having that set allocation and set kind of rebalancing, right? Of like, I'm a, you know, 80, 20. And if, it, you know, if I get less than 75 or more than 85, I'll rebalance halfway into stock, you know, whatever it is. Those are the days don't panic. And that's, that, that's what asset allocation is all about. I have a quick story before, actually, it's funny, I've written investment policy. Most pension funds, and ours was no different, have these like hundreds of pages, like a written investment policy. And um, I always said, I, I did it in public. I'm like, if you want somebody to not understand what your investment policy is, make it 100 pages. Like, it's a great idea. And so one of the things we did actually in year three was all the stuff we're talking about here of asset allocation and rebalancing and the view on indexing and like this outsourced model and right, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, Mark this concept that market timing doesn't work, which is kind of what we're talking about as well as the sort of subtext of a lot of what we're talking about. We end up with a, just took out the blank sheet of paper, we wrote a four page, ISBE has a four page in written investment policy. And now new board member with 130,000 beneficiaries, that's something people can understand. 
right? So good to make it under, like, which is, it wasn't really your question, but struck a nerve with me. Well, let me jump in and then we'll come back. You know, when we wrote about, I write yearly about my own investing plan, less that people need to like follow along or voyeur more just to be like, look, here's a framework for how I do it. And you can dunk on it or whatever it may be. But it sounds pretty complicated, but at its core, it's we joke, it goes back to the Talmud portfolio from 2000 years ago, which is a third stocks or business, a third sort of cash slash reserves, a third real assets, which is a pretty darn hard benchmark to beat. But again, that four pages, we always tell investors listening, like having a written investing plan, it could be a half a page even. It could be one line. You could be like, you know what? I do 60-40. I rebalance once a year. God bless you. Like, that's it. Like, it doesn't have to be. People assume that it has to be super complicated, but it really doesn't. No, the whole, this entire industry, the financial and investment industry does its best to overcomplicate everything and confuse everybody. It ends up being very transactional and we, you know, talked a bit about, at the end of the day, it's really the most important thing is I want to get as much of, of I, I, the equity experience and two thirds of your assets, right? Real assets and equities are, you're not, that's not weird what you just described, two thirds, one third. Like I may think I'm, you know, when I, when I say the equity, you know, real estate and the equity type risks. The most important thing is, is it's all about behavior. It's like how, when the horror, like we all would love, okay, during these gorgeous tenure, but we don't, we know, okay, that the, the permabeers don't, but the rest of us, I think, know. Nine out of every 10 years, four out of every five for sure, nine out of 10 probably years are really good. And it's great. And you're an idiot to not put 100% of your money in stocks. Okay. Stocks, real estate, equity, leverage. But then, my God help you. Okay. God help you on those days when the market is getting crushed. Okay. And you're sitting on the end of the bed, staring at the wall. And all my money, no matter how rich I am or poor I am or what, like, how you're going to behave on that day, because as you and I assume a lot of your listeners know, all the best days in the stock market, all of them come at maximum fear. You have to be invested on those days. You absolutely positively have to be invested on the hardest days ever it is to be invested when the S&P is jacking through the roof. Right. We just experienced a bunch of that March, April. The by the way, perm bears are like this is crazy, this is crazy, this is crazy. Guess what? Sorry, I have the money. You don't. So um, it's not crazy. It happens every single time. So it's all about dealing with that pain. That's why you're not an idiot to have, I'm not an idiot to have 20%. Maybe it should be 30. I don't know. I'll behave. I know how I behaved when I didn't have 20%. I didn't like it. So I am an 80-20 guy. Maybe I'm actually a 70-30 guy. Maybe I'll learn that when the, my, when the market gets crushed and I am 70-30. And I don't rebound. I don't have the guts to rebalance. So it's all kind of what works. And in the end, it really doesn't matter that much. The most important thing, of course, is just staying in the game and not getting blown out, whether that's doing stupid things. Again, fund your capital calls with margin, like or just margining your equities generally, or right? And you, all the kind of stupid things you do in those up markets, not rebalancing as, you know, let's say as an 80-20 guy and it drifts up, right? As the stock market just keeps going up, 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 up. And then not being able to kind of, deal. And also, by the way, you can't sleep at night. You might do really stupid things. So that could even affect your real life. That to me is the key to everything. We often send people 
they're always asking me, well, Meb, where should I go for a framework on policy portfolios or how to think about it? And Morningstar's done a bunch, but they tend to be pretty detailed. It's almost like there should be listeners, if you do this, let me know. Almost like a drop down menu where you could just go through, answer like 20 questions and it'll spit out your Vanguard digital advisor plus FOMO Coinbase account plus uh, yada, yada. Maybe it'll be the tribal checklist. I had a joke, Mark. It's not really a joke. I'm serious, but everyone thinks it's a joke where I tweeted maybe a couple years ago, and this was aimed at the unneeded complexity. And it goes along with so much of the drama and challenges of many of the real world institutions. CalPERS continually gets sort of my ire just because of how sympathetic I am to actually the challenges of managing that organization. And you've seen 2020 alone, how the CIO, I think, is already out, all the drama with their tail risk, yada, yada. And I had a tweet that goes something along the lines of, it was like, hey, uh, institutions, I'm more than happy to be your outsourced CIO. And once a year, I'll buy a basket of ETFs. We'll have a board meeting. You can pay me in pale ales. Uh, I said, or IPA. I've gone off IPAs. I'm convinced they just give me the worst hangover. So I'm back down to Pilsners and Pale Ales and we'll call it a day. And people just hated it, but I've actually had a few institutions reach out humorously enough. But my idea, long-winded idea for you is, should be almost like Mark, the pension fund doctor. They can like hire you, say, come in, clean up this mess, give them a full proctology exam and like, cause so many we see and not even big money institutions, there's plenty across the board. There's such a mess. This isn't really a question. It's a lead in. And then I'll eventually ask the question in a second. Go ahead. So a lot of that, of course, is the politicization, the politics that end up around. And here's the thing that I, it took me a long time to learn this. Okay. This question comes up, like came up all the time. I had no clue what the answer was. It's like, why isn't there more indexing? Not indexing all of it, but why, why don't you index more of it? If, if you index none of it, why don't you index 10% of your stocks or 30? If you index 20%, why don't you index 40%? That kind of thing. And I figured out why. So I, I spent actually a short eight-month stint on the board, not sure, but on the board of Illinois teachers, They, because I was chairing ISB, the governor asked me to go there. And I actually got a lot done. It was actually quite, quite great. In fact, I got the board there actually to agree to not pick managers to let the staff pick managers. We didn't go all the way to outsourcing, but I felt that was a huge victory to not have a bunch of teachers and a bunch of political people like picking managers based on 30 minutes they spent. It's insane. And then I also, yeah, I met a lot of people. I went to a few conferences, et cetera, et cetera. And what I realized is that there is real career risk to a CIO to index. It's, it's actually real. And it's the question like, What's most important to a person who is CIO of X institution? Most people say, I want you know, maximum returns at a minimum risk, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, they want to keep their job. And the problem with indexing is when you first index, I think you get a lot of attaboys and pats on the back. And it's like, thanks for saving the money. And then it does better. And, and then frankly, then it could grow. Like I always wanted to, I wanted to make sure we had indexing in every single asset class across our book so that the active managers were naked. I wanted them to be naked and comparing them to the one basis point guy. But as it kind of evolves, if you think about the CIO, it's like, geez, why do we need you? Like, um, it's so easy. We could meet once a year and that is the problem. 
Mark Levine, okay, thinks that is the problem. That a smart CIO is looking forward in time and saying, geez, I, yeah, I'm going to get a lot of pets. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna, people are going to like me now. I'm doing something smart. It's in the news. It's great, blah, blah, blah. It's going to great. And by the way, it's going to be the best thing we can do with the beneficiaries, which is, of course, what we all, it's the only thing we should care about, frankly. But at some point, it's going to be, geez, what, like we're not talking about anything. We're not, and that's the problem. It's hard for me, though, to envision the world not going that way, though. The beauty of the internet is it's a giant disinfectant. And look, I think going back 10, 20, 30 years, you had the Harvards of the prior century and then the Yales of this century, particularly in the early, you know, developing a model that if done correctly and everyone is on board, has the possibility to succeed. But you mentioned this career risk to be different to outperform the average. And let's be clear, the average global index portfolio is going to beat most, probably. 90%. To beat that, you have to be super weird and different. And being super weird and different and concentrated, like Yale is, Yale has like, I forget what it is, it's like 6% in traditional US stocks and bonds. To be concentrated and outperform, you have to be weird and different. Weird and different for career-wise you have to outperform, but many years, probably half, probably entire decades, you won't. And even Yale, I think, Swenson's probably got the longest lease of anyone on the planet, but there comes a time when it goes one, three, five, seven, how many ever years where the faculty, I mean, you saw it happen with Harvard, right? I mean, Harvard has been one of the best performing endowments ever in this decade. It's, I don't want to say blown up, but completely the structure there's massive fractures and rifts and everything. So it's hard. And it's almost like what you've seen with CalPERS, almost like an unwinnable structure. And part of it is the time horizon, which is really hard. Anyway, uh, any thoughts? <laughs> no, for sure. I've got big thoughts on that, I think. So I'm an indexer. And because I was chairman of the pension fund, I got to meet all these people and have conversations, not unlike this one, and hear different points of view. And I was talking to, so I was talking to the team at S&P. And I'm like, what do you guys think? Like, why, why did this happen? Like, it's so insane that this, that investing is the only activity anyone can think of where the less work you do, the better you are. Actually, work is bad. Work detracts from the result. Not doing anything always, almost 90% of the time outperforms futzing. And I know you have people written books and so yeah, I'm sure you've had the, you know, this topic multiple times on your show that if you think back like 40 years ago, there was a lot of alpha to be had. And there were people looking at like computers and the internet and all this information, which is a no doubt is a huge part of the ease of information. I think a huge part of it also is that every year these MBA, like these business schools, crank out another like 5,000, 10,000 people into the investing world. And everything is just so commoditized. It just makes it impossible. And of course, the other thing is that when you look at like outperformance, uh, there's such a pleasure to have this conversation, to be able to get into sort of things like this, like even like a great, a supposedly great manager take like, so Dan Loeb, um, who's a terrific manager, was in our portfolio. We got, we got rid of him, not anything he did, just it was one of the, we fired just about everybody. And uh, right now I was on CNBC and they're like, dude, like he's 2X the S&P. It was, of course, four minutes long. This is why I'm thanking you for the, the, the you know, this sort of podcast format. So there was no opportunity. 
so the thing about even a great, and Dan Loeb is a great investor. He is a great investor. You look at what Dan Loeb's done though, when he managed $100 million, $200 million, even a billion dollars, he was small cap, right? He was, this is in the early 2000s. He was small cap. He was like companies that didn't have all these resources and McKinsey and all, whatever the hell it is, right? And there was kind of real, dis- all of his alpha actually came from that, that time. And so if you actually, and, and then of course, inevitably, what, what happens when you crush the S&P is then pension funds give you like, you, you're overwhelmed with money. And it, unless you're dumb, you can do math. It's like, wow, two, I don't need 20. I can, two is really like, uh, right. And as long as I'm a, right. And I can do 2% on 10 billion instead of making two and 20 on 1 billion. But now I can't invest in those same companies because I have so much money and nobody does these like dollar weighted, you have to dollar weight the returns. You can't just say it, over this time period, when you made this much, when you match this much money, you made this alpha. And so there's all these challenges out in the world and it's really tricky. It's really true, which is why I actually tend to agree with you that really the world should be certainly much more indexed than it is. And right, eventually you get to more, right? There's, we're not at the equilibrium point, not by a long shot. You mentioned Loeb, and this might be a fun segue to being super weird and different over time. Before we started hitting the record button, we were rapping a little bit about stock pickers and 13Fs, which... Interestingly enough, is the government or SEC is thinking about changing the rules a little bit. We'll see if they do. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts there. Yeah, so I've kind of gotten fixated on that. And you know, so I spent my time like running sort of my own family office. And originally I was thinking about like biotech. And there's a few just terrific biotech investments. And that's a super unique thing, right? Where whatever the algorithms, et cetera, that have all these, you know, the endless source of MBAs that have come into the investing world. Biotech is strange, right? It's a different kind of mindset to, um, it's not the stuff we all learned in business school. Right. You can't screen for balance sheet and income statement necessarily for biotech. There is no revenue. There's a molecule somewhere that might not even be in clinical trials yet, but there are a few managers, right, that have proven over a long, long time that they do this and they do it really, really well. And so that's the way I did my own personal biotech investment. I just sort of saw what they did. And I, and I also did it um, in a very anecdotal way, which is usually the way 13Fs kind of you know, sort of operate. Uh, people who use 13Fs like, oh, Buffett bought, sold Delta Airlines, and he just bought Snowflake. I'll do that. That's typically the, the approach 13Fs. And I tried to be a little more methodical, but not very much. Anyway, I do a lot of, you know, some tech investing. I don't have super high conviction in, uh, I, I think like an Amazon gives me a lot of kind of downside protection business model wise, but there's some guys in tech that, so I said, I'm like, so 13Fs were really informing. And, and a lot of days I'd wake up, I'm like, geez, I, I, and I don't even do this necessarily every day, but I'm like, geez, maybe I would just do what freaking well rock and Sequoia, a few others, great, great public market tech investors who totally understand what's going on in the private markets, which is where these like up and comer small cap guys can get really sideswiped. And the, the other interesting thing, we did tiny, tiny, tiny bit of this at, at ISBE, tiny, of, um, uh, right, that there's so, so some guys out there do this kind of professionally, but very, I don't think particularly well. To me, the perfect portfolio, I don't know the adult. Most individual investors and most institutions don't have $20 billion and don't have access to it. And frankly, the ones that do actually need this more. If I thought about productizing 
what I did at ISBE, which by the way, I said number one priority, like top 10% pension fund, right? top decile, last three years, last one, like in different asset classes, which is very important to look at the separate asset classes because you take a lot of risk in one in your asset allocation and look like you're better than you are, but very like well-performing fund. And I'm like, geez, just, if you just index and then do some weird stuff on the margin, be focused about it. To me, innovation is sort of where like the potential alpha is that there's this strangeness about biotech strength. There's a lot of strangeness about tech where these companies were joking. I think we're joking before the podcast started that a company like Snowflake, right, is now, you know, we were, we were talking about with the deep value guys. Now, like, it's not enough now to be valued like Zoom is like a multiple, like 30 times revenue. Now, because stocks are going to be multiple, like a multiple of Zoom, right? multiple of like the highest multiple, right? But I'm not so, everyone is really, really stupid to invest in Snowflake, really, really stupid to invest in Shopify, really, really stupid to invest in Amazon over the last few years. I don't think so. So it's different. There's like different, it's not the metrics that we all learn. So all this information that's going into these stock prices, that's making indexing dominant, right? Making deep value so hard. I feel, so now with, with a partner, we're sort of screwing around with, geez, how do we make a product out of this? And we're thinking about, there's a lot to this, right? Because there's, it, it only changed every quarter, which is wonderful. And some quarters, you know, the great matters don't do anything. And of course, this only makes sense with buy and hold matters. By the way, great investment. This is a misconception of the whole world that the great investor, the reason why a 13F strategy wouldn't work is the great investors are geniuses. They're wizards. They market, they get market timing right. They, none of the great investors don't market time. The great investors find great businesses and, and actually hold them. Chris Hahn, which is not, would not be part of a strategy like this, but a great, great deep value guy. Seth Klarman, another great deep value guy. Um, those are TCI and Bow Poster there. Chris Hahn has owned uh, charter communications forever. And I, I joke, it's like, geez, can't I just take this stock tip? It's like, but again, that you know, it's more so. So I'm like, innovation and 13F buy and hold, I think is a really great, like, I think that's the diversifier, right? And potential alpha in a public markets stock portfolio. That's where we ended up at ISB, which ended up being like a top decile public stock fund. I, I don't think you lose much by missing some of the private. Asset class. Even if you do miss a little bit, you are also missing something more significant, which is the fees they charge. And two and 20 is a big hurdle. We've actually talked to, and I'm not going to name names because they probably wouldn't like it. I've talked to many, many, over a dozen institutions, family offices over the years that run 13F strategies in-house. And they say, well, look, we looked at allocating to XYZ and we just end up buying what they buy. And initial reaction from a lot of people that we've gotten over the years is somewhat negative. They're like, oh my gosh, you're just stealing their ideas. And I say, no, no, these managers should be sending me bottles of champagne. And yet I've yet to get any, the hedge fund managers. And they say, why? You're buying their names and they don't get to charge you any fees. I say, yeah, but by definition, because of the 45-day delay on the 13F, no matter what, I will be buying what they're selling. Now, turns out I don't think it has much benefit because, as you mentioned, the timing is actually not that important. But I said at least it gives them a floor. But still, no bottles of champagne. Hedge fund manager listeners, you can send me some Dom anytime you want. But I think there's so much merit to the 13F strategy. 
I think it, A, could be run systematically, or B, for a lot of people, just serve as an initial screen. Say, hey, I want some new biotech ideas to research. You mentioned Seth Klarman, which is humorous because Institutional Investor just came out with an article where they said, basically, like the Buffett late 90s, he's lost his touch. People were redeeming. And I always love looking at the Klarman 13Fs because it's a laundry list of stocks I've never heard of. You look at a lot of hedge fund managers, it's just like the hedge fund hotel. They all own the same 10 names. But Klarman, universally, I'm like, I've never heard of half of these companies. Anyway, I love doing it. I haven't spent as much time in it as much as I used to. Biotech is a particularly interesting place to do it, I think, almost more than anywhere. Yeah, the 2 and 20 is a big, big budget to spend on being late to the trade. There's a lot, that's a lot of money. And by the way, some of these are more than 2 and 20, if you can believe that. So you are going to let, right, there is the lag, right, that they buy and sell during the 90, you know, the quarter. And then so on average, let's say that's the middle day of the quarter. So you're getting the information 90 days later. So this won't work for the traders, but market timing doesn't work. So great investors aren't market timing. Obviously, there's some investors that are, who knows what the hell it is they do, Renaissance, Citadel, Millennium. I mean, you can count them on a couple, on two hands. Like there's not a lot of those guys, okay? That, that 13F does not work at all with guys like that. But, um, and I think 13F, so a buddy of mine, actually, you know, thinking about this also in like secured lending, but which is a lot tougher to do, but, but um, made a really interesting statement that kind of stuck with me of that what you got to worry about with these strategies is that the information rapidly becomes noise. And that's, I think, where a lot of people have gone wrong. As soon as you, you sort of widen too much or I mean, you're going to end up diversifying your way right back, you know, like you've seen in Animal House where, right, where Tom Hulse gets like walked right back, gets to meet some of the sorority, the fraternity brother, gets right back to the nerds on the stairs. Um, and you're going to meet the cool guys and then you kind of keep going, 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 going. And now I'm stuck like I'm back in, the, in this crappy place that I started in. Anyway, uh, so, so, I, so to me, it feels like the productization of what I did at, at ISBE, which was really successful. And it does feel like, I think as long as you kind of do it purposeful and systematically, and like I was saying earlier, like the, the um, things like, you know, thinking through how much do I care about just the individual weights or the overlap or just the presence of a name or if, if somebody owns more than 10%, which actually, by the way, means then they can, they, they're required to form force. One last thing before I shut up here is there is this feeling, I don't have it and you don't have it, this feeling of like, oh, you're copying. It's like, I don't see how, so the SEC for 45 years has required funds that have over $100 million in assets to report this. And for longer than that, but not twice as long, I don't think, maybe twice. The SEC has required companies to issue 10Ks and 10Qs and 8K. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. Like the SEC requires public information and what everybody, like you are a bad investor if you don't use everything of all the tools that are available to you. The thing I always laughed about was, look, the rules are what they are. Disclosures are what they are. And if you want to ostrich, put your head in the sand, that's fine. You don't have to look, but it seems silly not to take advantage of all the possible information out there. And in the same bucket as insider buying and selling and everything else, I want to make two quick points that I think are funny and instructive. One is that there are a number, and it is not insignificant, where if you track a fund manager through 13F holdings, that strategy outperforms the underlying fund. 
because of two reasons. One is the massive two and 20 fee. And two is that some portfolio managers, as you mentioned, the timing is actually negative alpha, right? Like when they get in and out, it may not even be optimal, but the fee is a big one. And then second, you were talking about managers that aren't ideal and obviously the macro and maybe market neutral guys because the shorts don't show up. Obviously anyone who's doing derivatives and CTAs, but humorously enough, some of the frauds, we used to look at a couple of the funds way back in the day and two come to mind where the 13F did massively, massively worse than the disclosed performance. And we used to always scratch our head because I chat with all my hedge fund buddies, which I used to do a lot more than I do today, because they would always say, Meb, I'd say, list your top 10 funds that if you could follow and invest in stock funds, what were they? And one that always came up was Galleon, which ended up being a fraud. And the other one, which wasn't, but you know, got into quite a bit of scrutiny, books written about it, and now he's buying the Mets. I won't say who it is, but that was also a terrible one to follow. Now, they traded a lot, but so did Galleon. But even showing the returns versus a benchmark was just absolutely atrocious anyway. So it can give you some insight as well into actually kind of what they're up to. So like I said, where I started with this was on biotech. To me, it was, I don't know where you'd begin to start. And on the tech side, I originally started with it just sort of informing decisions as you're talking, which is great. I mean, that's, a, I think, a great thing to do. There's, I do think, uh, so I feel like if I was sitting in my chair at ISBE, like if somebody come in and talk to me about that, like this feels kind of great to me that as long as, as, long as it's like systematic, have some like sort of somebody else do it, keep track of it. It's obviously not a 2 and 20, 20 product. It's just not that kind of thing. You know, the other funny thing, we, we didn't talk about this, a lot of, most of these managers are closed, even if you could invest, right? Even if you knew the, you know, GP and you, you know, call them up and even if you could, you can't because they're closed. And, and if anything, you know, a lot of these managers, I mean, once these managers become multi-billionaires, which of course the great ones do because that, I mean, the carry on huge, huge money, right? It almost drifts into almost family office-ish and they, they really want to give money back. Um, so they can really manage the money kind of optimally, right? It's actually the guys who can't perform well who live on the two and not, the, you know, kind of not the 20. There's other noise. I mean, you know, for example, like, I, you know, where being late is harmful, like, a, you know, an IPO uh, where, you know, some of the, some, some great managers do some you know, like late stage private market where it's really just, they, they, they're public market managers, but they, they know the company's going to go public and it's a way to get, a bunch of shares and, and uh, Snowflake is the greatest example ever of that where, uh, right, Snowflake is the hardest 13F, it's so funny, we're having this conversation and it's a week after literally the hardest 13F quandary you could ever have, which is that, you know, the great managers who were in Snowflake private and then it comes in and you have a 2X pop on the IPO, it's like, what the hell do I do now? So that's where, again, a systematic approach and you got to have kind of grownups at the table to really do it correctly. I hesitate to almost introduce this comment because we're getting to be Joe Rogan-esque long on this podcast. So we'll start to, I knew this was going to happen because we have so much to talk about, but the example we used to always give that I think illustrates a lot of the challenges of not just 13Fs, but money management in general is if you replicate what Buffett's done and say, just take his top 10 stock picks, rebalance when they're public quarterly. It gives you approximately the same performance as Berkshire. I think it's actually a little bit higher, but 
going back to like 2000, he's stomped most mutual funds on the planet, but much of the outperformance came in the internet bubble aftermath. And whatever your alpha concentrated manager may be, in this illustration at stocks, they go through these periods of not just one or two or three years, often sometimes it's more than that, five or 10, and of underperformance or versus a certain benchmark value, obviously has been one that's really struggled this past decade, and yet still be potentially valid as a manager. So many institutions, academic research shows, and individuals obviously lumped in this, they want to measure people on a quarter, a year, at the most, maybe three if you're super rigorous, but almost never more than that. How is that something that as investors we can deal with? Is it something we can deal with or is it just an insurmountable, impossible problem? So that's the hardest thing in the world, right? It's not possible. So one of the op-eds I did that Bloomberg actually carried was actually on this topic that, again, not I feel like I'm picking on the institutions who do a lot right, okay? But, but one of the things they don't do right is um, it's always flavor of the month and they're always like firing this guy because they had a bad year, maybe a bad three years, and hiring the next guy, right? This is what I think indexing is brilliant at fixing. Actually, there's a, this professor at Arizona State who did some great, great research. He actually reached out to me. I actually referenced him in a couple articles. And, and there's actually, it's funny, there's so much academic research, like the, the Miller, Medigliana, like all that stuff, you know, Gene Fama, et cetera, like all that stuff, which... Again, there's like one really, as Gene Fama says, there's like one great investing idea a decade, right? And there's three great marketing ideas a week. One of my all-time favorite lines. To me, that's such a challenge. And it's like hardest thing. So now, like me as a human being, right, it, where I have this innovation bias, I discount cash flows, I love, you know, I, but like we're value. And again, where I almost feel like it's a, that feels like March 2000 to me right now. Right. It feels March 2000. It feels like when my buddy Dave Rapport, who left me a voicemail on March 10th, 2000, unbelievable, of Union Carbide, Bank America, Goodyear, like literally March 10th, the NASDAQ 5000 of like, he was at Sanford Bernstein at the time, which was a deep value manager. It's like you scratch your head and you know, Snowflake at 100 times revenue and Google felt like a value, it felt almost like a value stock at 20 times earnings, you know, it's like 30 times earnings. And, 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 and like all this, you know, Visa 35 times, whatever the hell, like, you know, and there's these things, these poor, ugly stepchildren who've been left behind, right? And and have horrible tenure track. They've worked as, uh, what is it, Josh Brown, who's like one of my favorites. It's like, dude, they got terrible 40-year track records. Like, how long before value, like value doesn't, doesn't work. But yet, when you ask me the question, I swear to you, Matt, like when you ask me the question, it's like, I do, I do not feel comfortable saying value is dead and I'm not an idiot to not be backing up the truck when I can get amazing companies like General Motors at five times, Boeing at three times, like a cruise lines like two or three times. And even away from COVID you know, stuff, I mean, General Motors, I'd argue, is probably helped by COVID, but banks at eight times and, and I mean, big, beautiful banks and energy companies and and. It's the hardest thing in the world, right? It's the hardest thing in the world, which is also, I think, why thou shalt honor all four tribes. Because the deep value guys are like, yeah. <laughs> one day we'll discount cash flows. <laughs> I think it's a great framework. I'm looking forward to your article that you're going to write. We've now forced you, publicly shamed you into writing this concept. And there are certain structures that I think people 
behave better in we've seen, whether like the target date funds, people mentally, I think, view those as long-term investments. Obviously, the pensions they're locked into. I would like to see more innovation in sort of super low cost personal pensions sort of concepts. Annuities in that ballpark, the problem with annuities is they tend to cost an arm and a leg. But I think there's some, hopefully some listeners out there working on this problem. We've talked about some of our ideas in sort of this investment lockbox approach where you're sort of locked in for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And then it allows you to do some of these tilts and calibrations that you're talking about where you can over rebalance to things that look totally crazy. But the structure, people love to talk about having a long-term horizon, but don't behave like it. And so trying to align the structure with that sort of mental concept, I love the idea. There's just not a whole lot out there yet that looks great because people can just click and sell everything today or tomorrow. And that's uh, usually not advantageous. Right. And now like Robinhood, they're like clicking on options and leveraged, you know, which are you know, wildly levered on wildly volatile times five. It, crazy. That sort of gave me this thought that it's so counterintuitive. So private equity actually isn't this super great asset because if you Right. What pension funds inevitably did was they buy the high yield bonds that are garbage, actually riskier than typical SP 500 stock because it sits behind more debt. So complete garbage. And they buy high yield bonds and their LPs in the two and 20 private equity funds. And they'd just be better off owning the, that whole cap, you know, cap stack in a small cap version. They actually would have done better. But even, even private equity firms that do well, it's like, so one of the smartest guys I know said, yeah, pension funds should just put all their money in private equity. And I know he thinks like I do. And in fact, he also has the second step of the thing I joke around called the Levine ratio, which actually P and I published a piece I did of, you know, net alpha over gross alpha. It's like, this needs to be a fair pie split. Private equity dies on that hill. Okay. Right. It's, it's good returns, but the other guys, again, buying sports teams and I'm getting a few bips. And he's like, it should all be P. And, he, and it was for the reason you just said, it's like, because when you invest in private equity, you actually can't sell when you're so. So when these, you know, I, I talk about the morning of the horror morning when the stock market closed up. Well, what about the board meeting, the Zoom board meeting? Because we're all inside, right? When every all the trustees come together and they're scared out of their minds, and it's like, you know, like if it was all just in private equity, it's it's a dumb reason to pay two and twenty to somebody, okay? But it's actually got some validity of the value is locking the thing away. And my God, so if you could pay somebody 40 bips or 70 bips, whatever, just don't, I say this to my wife. It's, it's so funny. It's like, don't let me out. <laughs> don't let me near a keyboard, okay? <laughs> Some enterprising, more innovative listeners could figure this out. There's an old podcast we did with Paul Merriman where he gives each of his kids 10 grand when they're born, grandkids, puts it into a Vanguard index variable annuity but then wraps it in a trust. So they can't touch it for 50 years. So by the time they've retired, that 10 grand, if you compound it 10%, but I'm just doing the math to make it easy, is worth a million dollars. Now, how many people are willing to lock something up for that long? Of course, they're not. But that concept, there is some more there, there. Like the benefit to the investor is in many ways a feature, not a bug, the lockup. The benefit to the manager of the private equity is lock up for 
two and 20 for 10 years, because by the time people find out if they did anything good, they're either, like you mentioned, they did great or they did terrible, in which case they're out of business. There's no career risk anyway. We got to start to wind down because otherwise we'll just keep you all day. We'll just have to have you back. This has been one of my favorite podcasts and the longer ones usually are. So we'll end with sort of two final ideas or concepts. One, it's 2020. We've seen a lot of weird shit this year, this past decade, not just in the real world, but in financial markets, we alluded to a few early and we still got three months to go. So who knows? But future trading negative. We've had gold at all time highs. We got interest rates at near zero in the US and negative elsewhere. As you look to the horizon, and you can take this in any direction you choose, and think about A, either the asset management industry, the real asset money management space, so opportunities of funds investing in a world of 0% interest rates, the future of this whole space. I'm going to give you a blank canvas. Anything have you excited, super worried on your brain that you're thinking about? Anything come to mind? Well, two things. We've talked a lot about the 13F zone. So, so that I'm like, I'm really excited that that as kind of the perfect second equity asset. So that's one that gets sort of done systematically. So the 60-40 portfolio that we all just rolls off our tongue like nothing, which is great. 60-40, it is great. 60% stocks, 30% bonds, lock it away, rebalance once a year, once a quarter, whatever the hell it is you do, stick to it index, whatever, do, you know, this much percent domestic, international, emerging market, treasuries, corporates, blah, blah, blah. Do not call high yield a bond. It's not. It's riskier than equities. Had to get that in. So the future of the 60-40, when you sit down at a computer or your phone and you look at the ETFs, the Muni, right, the BND, the, you look at the ETFs of all, of all bonds or Munis or corporates, Again, stick, staying away from the total garbage of high yield, which is not even like around four, four or five percent. I mean, it, you, like I would always tell my dad, it's like you know, if you're getting a four or five percent yield, what about the they you gave them a dollar, they gave you back five cents. What about the ninety-five cents they still have? I worry about that, Dad. So, um, in a world of no yield, what the hell is it that you do? And if you know, sixty forty grew out of a time when you you know five, six, seven percent. And then even 3%, 2.5% treasuries, pick up 100 bips of credit spread on, you know, on a single-A corporate bond or a mortgage-backed security. Um, you can squeak out right there, 4 or 5% maybe. And that was, we are in a, it blows my mind kind of where we are because I don't want to buy a bond. And I argue with my, old, my good friends who I really respect, who are smart guys, brilliant guys, I'm like, geez, 60, 40 feels right when bonds have a yield. But if bonds don't have a yield, first of all, I might as well just be cash because cash has no yield and bonds have no yield. Now I don't have risk of punch bowls being taken away. There I spend a little time with that tribe. So cash is, I guess, a bigger out, right? Because that part of the portfolio can't get you any money now. So now it's just pure ballast. It's pure, I'm not jumping out the window, right? When the S&P drops by 8% in a day the day after Donald Trump and his son-in-law had a conversation not to, so because they didn't want to spook the stock market. I'm not a Trump hater at all. But um, I think it's really funny that that was the reasoning. Your points on what the hell do you do on, on you know, when value has a 40-year track record of getting its ass kicked by growth and, and getting annihilated, the trailing kind of 10 years. 
right? This is another, this is like a mega question, isn't it? What's the answer? <laughs> what, what does one do? I don't know. I think yeah, you, you probably have more equity. Like the, the classic 60-40 is more like 65-35 or 70-30. It is some other number that's higher than 60 because I don't have yield anymore in my bonds. And I think it's not bonds. I think it's mostly cash and maybe a tiny bit of bonds for a purely bizarre, you know, negative interest or whatever the hell. So I think 65. Again, what the hell do I know? Okay. So I feel like I'm more of a kind of a risk on type guy. So I'm 80, 20. But to me, the question is like, what we know is this. We know that like 100 zero is kind of stupid because even Warren Buffett's estate is 90, 10. Right. We learned in, in investing 101, free lunches, efficient frontier, slap 10% treasuries. What you gain, you're not losing so much. Right. right? So no one should be less than 90, 10. And so that's okay. But I want to have some ballast and 10 doesn't like, like, so that's to me, I, I don't know if it's 70, 30, maybe it's 70, 30, 75, 25, two thirds, one third, as you are, maybe you're like the genius out of everything and two thirds, one third ballast, right? One third, like cash I can buy groceries with, I like can sleep at night. Maybe that, but, but I think 60, 40 doesn't feel like a keeper because I don't know when is this thing going to end? Like, this is not some temporary Right. We've been living with it for 10 years. We've been living with a a form of it for 10 years. I was going to say we need to dust off your old securitization chops and start applying that to new modern day asset classes like sneakers. I was laughing at a bunch of these sort of modern platforms, but that's the old fart in me compared to, I guess, the younger generation because I was really tempted. Nike introduced a special, they called them the dunk champion high top or whatever it was, but it was in my album out of Virginia colors, special release, limited edition. And sure enough, all the speculators bought them. And the only way you can buy them is on these StockX and other exchanges where they're $250 each. Listeners, I'm not going to disclose if I bought a pair or not, but I joked with you before the show, the only benefit of this pandemic is that UVA has been champions for two years now. But alternate, there are some, some, and we do this next podcast, there's some alternate sort of interesting ideas of finding yield in altogether different ways, potentially in this decade than in the past of just government bonds. One of my oldest, of course, just because my background is farmland, which has been kind of garbage the last five years, but incredible over the last 10 and 20. But that's a multi-hundred-year-old idea. All right, Mark, we got to start winding down sometime or otherwise we're going to, I'm going to keep you all day. Question we ask all of our podcast guests, most memorable investment, personal or professional, good or bad, anything come to mind? In uh, yeah, first quarter of 2009, our book is badly underwater. I joke sometimes my partners are kind of hiding under the desk, kind of, sort of, but sometimes I hide under my desk too. So there was a, Babson is a, um, Babson is a, ter- a terrific lend, like it's so boring. Senior secured lending, underlying CLOs. Babson is kind of as boring as you get. And there's a, like a, there's a, so a, a, a single A Babson CLO. So a MES clean. So you knew it was going to be a super clean portfolio and it was on offer for like eight cents. And our views, these are par bonds. Like it's a 12x on senior, like uh, right with lots of like so in a for, if your listeners don't don't know so in a CLO there's a lot of like equity, there's credit enhancement so there's a portfolio of senior secured loans but then 
there's different classes of securities. We were not on the bottom. We had lots of guys underneath us and some guys on top of us. But the way you get so, well, the way something is eight cents instead of 70 cents is there are like you could get a zero. OK, so because there's guys on top. And uh, so my favorite's like this is the best bond I ever bought. And it was like good size, it's like 12 million bucks. And uh, it was on offer for like eight cents. And I, Wachovia was the, the, our counterparty. And I'm like seven and a half. <laughs> right. And then we didn't hear back that day. Then the next morning they came back at seven. And then I'm, the whole night I'm like, what an idiot. Like, it's a gorgeous piece of paper. It's like, it's almost like you can't help yourself. Right. So even Mr. Indexer, right. Like, like, like I can't help, but like, but then we have to protect ourselves from stupid stuff that we got the bond, right. And it made a gazillion dollars and, you know, yada, yada. But um, it's, it's sort of a funny story. So. That's great. I have some similar stories about being a cheap bastard, but it was saying that lovingly, by the way, that's a compliment, but it has to do with surfboards on Craigslist. So another story for another day. Mark, it's been a blast. Where do people find out? They want to read more about your thoughts are, where do they go? So I've got, uh, so I put all my, all my media stuff. I should put this on there as well. LevineRatio.com. I, I, I update it occasionally. It's all my old beds, you know, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, my CBC shtick and things like this. And uh, I've started to tweet. This is how I sort of came across like you and Pomp, and, which has been a blast. Just kind of dabbling. God, I can't. And so uh, anyway, maybe you'll read. We'll add it to the show notes. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so I'm and so so I'm around, and uh, I have to point out before we end that I think if there's anybody in the country who isn't rooting for the Nuggets, right? It's like what's kind of wrong with you if this isn't like good versus evil? I like to think my Miami Heat are kind of the same. I grew up in Miami, and they've kind of a team that you can't you don't know any players on the team, and uh, so we're over here we're rooting for you unless they play unless they end up playing the, the finals. By the time this comes out, there'll probably be resolution to that. So fingers crossed. Hopefully we bless both teams with making it to the finals. We'll see. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>